499 years and 363 days ago, or more simply put, 500 years from this coming Tuesday, Martin Luther did an extraordinary thing. He posted 50 or 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. It was his intent to call for a debate within the church over the relationship between money and religion, and specifically the selling of indulgences. To give you a sense of his writing, I'll read you a couple of his theses to you. You should know up front that I got a D in college German, so I'm going to read them to you in English. Here's the first. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Here's the second. This word, speaking of repentance, cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. That is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Here's a third. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. You might consider taking time to Google it and read the other 95 of these theses which set ablaze the Reformation in the church 500 years ago. It was an extraordinary time for the church because in essence Martin Luther pushed the church back to the gospel and back to an orthodox position for which the church had previously held. That salvation is according to the Scriptures alone. That it's to be found in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are most commonly called the five solas of the Reformation. Written by Luther, but it certainly wasn't only him. There were lots of guys involved with this over a great time period. And what was going on is they saw error in the church practice, and they saw truth in God's Word, and therefore they thought and they sought to re-gospel the church. That is, they wanted to bring the church back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that flows really well into our text this morning, because this morning as we open up Acts 15, we're going to find the church, even the early church, with a need to re-gospel. That is, to come back to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So as you turn to Acts 15, let me give you some backdrop to this text. You might remember in Acts 11, Peter receives a dream about all the animals on a great sheet. I call it the picnic blanket. God shows him in this moment that there is nothing unclean. By the end of Acts 11, a church has been planted in Antioch. By Acts 13, which we began to look at last week, we see a local church functioning with elders, and two of them are sent out. In Acts 13 through 14, Paul and Barnabas are sent out on the first missionary journey, which probably lasts around two years. And Acts 14 ends, more or less, with Paul and Barnabas, very similarly to what Tim Hughes just did for us, they give a missions report. Missions reports are extraordinarily biblical. In fact, we'll find them three or four more times in the text this morning. 
So we'll pick up on Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas leave. Immediately false teachers creep in. Like the ones that followed them through Galatia, they crept into the church at Antioch and they started teaching people that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. There's a lot to unpack there, but let's focus on this. In effect, what they wanted to preach was for Christ to save you, you must become like us. That it's our opinion of your salvation that matters. Luke goes on to write verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, you can only imagine how that debate goes, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now I can't imagine that debate going smoothly. Paul would have been an extraordinary debater. You find that through the book of Romans. But here he shows great humility and great trust in the apostles. Because you find Paul and Barnabas borrowing the church van, getting some others in board, and going to Jerusalem so that the apostles and the elders of then the macro church could sort it out. Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. I'll pause again for a moment to show you two more local churches and to point out, again, missions reports, both in Phoenicia and Samaria. And then they give another one in Jerusalem, verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders And they declared all that God had done with them. Paul and Barnabas keep declaring what God is doing with the Gentiles in bringing them to Himself, that they're coming to faith, and many are rejoicing, but not everyone. So when we come to verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this same false gospel that was creeping in at Antioch has crept into Jerusalem. Brings a place for this church, the whole church, to be regospeled, To come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. First note, looking at verse 5, God saved some of the Pharisees. Let that sink in for you for just a moment. That God saved some of the rule following were better than everyone else people. God brought them into His gospel and they were saved. The text is clear about that calling them believers, and yet they remained Pharisees even after believing in Jesus. 
Now, if we're honest, that can be some of our issues too, isn't it? For if I'm a legalist, or more simply put, if I were a rule follower and I come to Christ, it's easy for me to accept my rule-following tendencies. In fact, I'm likely to spiritualize my rule-following tendencies so that I think to be approved by God means that I obey these rules, I do these things. But you know what's hard to accept for rule followers? People who don't follow the rules. Because I'm right. And they're wrong. I do it correctly. And they do it wrongly. They need to become more like me. And isn't that the irony of self-righteousness? For a Pharisaic Christian to say that the cross is big enough to handle my sin, that God could forgive me, that God could redeem me, that God could take my sin upon His shoulders at the cross, pay for it completely. And yet I can minimize my own sin and not make that big a deal of it. All the while, practically preaching, the cross is not big enough to handle your sin. God can't forgive you or redeem you unless you become more like us. Unless you look like us, act like us, and do it the way we do it. At the end of verse 5, not only did they need to be circumcised, but they needed to be ordered to keep the law of Moses. Now, if that isn't rule following at its worst, I don't know what it is. But we don't just tell them to follow the rules. We order them to follow the rules. You can start to see the basis for what Paul will write in the book of Romans. Verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This becomes a big church issue. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Now I want to pause here in verse 7 for just a moment because we need to point out something that Luke doesn't. And that's in Galatians 2. First, Peter has to be confronted by Paul for his own treatment of Gentiles. Peter falls into this himself. Yet when confronted by Paul, stands up on the issue, and that's where we find him in verse 7, standing up and reminding them of Acts 11. Peter stands up and says, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. We've walked through Acts. We've keep going back to Ephesians 1.13 that it's in the hearing of the gospel and the believing of the gospel that denotes real belief in people. It's hearing and believing that resorts in the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens here in verse 8. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. It cleanses their hearts by faith. Not good works. Not following the law, 
Not having their good deeds outnumber their bad. No, he does it by faith. Hearing the word of the gospel and believing. Verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Listen to Peter. Our dads couldn't do it. They couldn't carry the law. We can't do it. We can't carry the law. Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Note Peter's humility. Peter's lack of self-righteousness. For we will be saved just as they are. You see the reversal? No longer are we the dominant group and they become like us. No, we can be like them. We can be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. And immediately, the gospel, the true gospel, that in believing in Jesus Christ is the forgiveness of our sins comes to bear on the whole church. They were re-gospeled. Verse 12, And all of the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them amongst the Gentiles. You can almost imagine that picture as the Holy Spirit brings some conviction to bear that it's about belief that matters. As Paul... Barnabas and Paul share these stories of how these Gentiles, these pagans, these normal people who don't know God, how they come to know Him and come to believe in Him, and they're blown away by it. They're humbled by it. That's what we find here in Acts 15. The early church being re-gospeled. That's my made-up word. To be brought back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing that happened in 1517. When Martin Luther stood up to put 95 theses on the door. He looked at the church. Said, this isn't right. We're missing it. We're misleading people. This isn't the truth. I have no doubt that God has done this hundreds, if not thousands of times. And it still needs to happen. Consider for a moment that there was a debate in Antioch with five elders that couldn't be resolved. And it became such a big problem that they had to take it to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, it was a debate between a lot of apostles and elders who had to discuss Seeing it from every direction. Do you have to earn salvation? Friends, we clearly have a propensity to add things to the gospel. To make requirements of people that the gospel doesn't require. To come to a place where the cross of Jesus Christ is no longer sufficient. But our list is 
Now, I suspect if we look inward with this, we should find all of our ourselves in this text. Because there are moments when I, and I'm sure you do it too, when I feel like, man, God would love me more if I just did this. Man, I think God would just appreciate me more if I did this. I'd have God's favor if I did this. And all that is, is me preaching a false gospel to myself. As if what God wants from me is my performance. And when I behave, I'm in his good graces. And when I fall short, well, he wants to discipline me. Without question, when we fall short and when we're in sin, he does discipline us. But he disciplines us as a loving father who loves us far more than we'll ever know. He disciplines us way better than I disciplined my own kids when I do it out of frustration or anger. He's a good father. Jesus Christ is sufficient in and of himself for our complete salvation. For a moment, consider the Pharisee believers in verse 5 who would proclaim they have to be circumcised. They have to be ordered to follow the law. For not only were these believers oppressing the Gentiles or the world with the law, they were actually oppressing each other with the law. Do you think any of these guys met any of their standards? Do you think they just spent most of their time looking down their smug little noses at each other because they knew the part of the law they kept and the part that they struggled with? And the part they kept was the important part. The part they struggled with was not important. I'm confident that's what was going on. And not only did they oppress each other with the law, they oppressed themselves. Yes, Jesus died for me, but I still need to keep the 613 laws written by Moses. If you haven't studied the law later, I'm going to point out some of the more odd ones. For if this is the call of the Pharisees, that you have to not only believe in Jesus and love your neighbor, but you also have to be mindful about not planting your fields with two different kinds of seed in order to be acceptable by God. Then the farmers here, I'm sure we've broken it, right? My little wine barrel in my backyard that I grew both cucumbers and bell peppers in surely is an offense. Or maybe I should believe in Jesus, love my neighbor, and wear clothes and not wear clothing made of two different materials. Currently wearing cotton and denim, so I'm clearly offending God. You have to do all of that to be acceptable to Jesus. Church, isn't this true? And we can laugh about that. We can even make jokes about it. But that's because their laws are different than our laws. It looks differently. We have a different pharisaical view and we like to justify our own views and oppress others with them, thus creating barriers to the gospel. Let me give you this. When I was at seminary, I worked at Dallas, or I worked at uh, Schofield Memorial Church. I was our high school pastor. One morning, I got out of my truck and immediately landed in a huge puddle. Now, my goal in getting out of my truck that morning was not to land in a puddle, but I found one. 
And my shoes, I was poor at the time, my only nice shoes, and my socks, and my pants were soaking wet halfway up my shins. So in a hurry, I took them off, and I threw on some flip-flops that were in my back seat. Now, I assure you, I wasn't trying to make a fashion statement, and I wasn't in any kind of spiritual rebellion. But I was wearing flip-flops and, and khaki pants. And while standing in the hall that morning, I heard a group of women walk by, and one of them remarked, shouldn't he know that you can't wear sandals in church? Now, I've gone back and replayed that moment thousands of times in my head. Shouldn't I know that I shouldn't wear sandals in church? Well, who told me that? Because at this point, nobody had ever told me that I couldn't wear flip-flops in church. But why was this her expectation of me? Because clearly I should know. Now, in that moment, if you think it through, if I were a visitor, would I ever have come back? There's not a chance. If I were a visitor, would I have felt welcomed to come and worship God like I was remotely accessible or acceptable to Him? No. And in fact, even as a guy on staff at the church, I felt pretty put off. Until one lady, I should tell you, the oldest in the group, turned to her peer and said, you know, Jesus wore sandals. And she totally bailed me out. Redeemed the whole situation for me. But I struggled with that moment. Because I've walked in and around churches for years that have lists of expectations for people. You have to perform to be here. If you don't, you're not welcome. We don't even list the rules on the door so that visitors would know. I had a friend visit our church in Memphis. He liked to wear fatigues and had dreadlocks. Told me that somebody walked up to him and told me he was not welcomed based on how he dressed. Do, do we have a no dreadlock and fatigues policy? We better not. The list could go on and on. I'm sure if we're honest about it, we could all point out our own bad experiences in church. Why? Because you're always going to have bad experiences in church. Always. Let me give you an example. If you're in the room and you're a sinner, please raise your hand. Your hand is not up. You're lying. Right. These are the people who will sin against you while you're here. All of them, probably. We shouldn't be shocked by that. At the same time, we need to be aware of the gospel and of the expectations of the gospel so that we're not burdening people with the law. We don't oppress them with the law. This is why Paul comes back and writes the book of Romans. We'll come back to two passages here. We'll start in Romans 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Let's make two notes on Paul. One, he's writing, telling you, you know the law, which means... You know all the rules, which means you know all the expectations. 
And you're to be held by it. So he gives you an illustration to make that clean. He gives an illustration for marriage. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law and she is free and she marries another man. She is not an adulteress. It's an application from their culture. This is what he writes, and, and then he brings it to application in 4 through 6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And by now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I'll put that in simpler terms. Paul writes, living under the law, being a rule follower, being someone who imposes rules on others, Bears fruit for death. Paul's words, not mine. But we were released from the law. And we serve in a new way of the Spirit. That we belong to somebody else. And he's not a rule master. We belong to somebody else. And we serve in a new way of the Spirit. If we were to follow through in Acts 15, you would find that it ends with the apostles and the elders sending a group of men back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Didn't just send them, sent a couple of other guys because they want the testimony of the whole church to be clear. That the church was to be regospeled. That is, that it was returned back to the gospel. That is belief in Jesus Christ that saves and nothing else. Friends, should it ever appear that I have one message and preach it from lots of different texts? I do. It's the gospel. It's the thing the entire Bible points us to from the Old Testament, anticipating the Messiah all the way to the New Testament where you see the manifestation of Jesus Christ. The gospel has come into the book of Acts where the gospel is proclaimed all through the letters, where the gospel is explained into the book of Revelation, where the gospel is consummated. It's what the whole book is about. You can't follow the rules. You will never be good at it. Peter says... It oppressed my dad and his dad and his dad and his dad and his dad. And it's oppressing us. Therefore, Jesus. Friends, the church at times needs to be regospeled. But listen to this. So do I. So do I. Each and every day, I need to be brought back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
For there are times when I need to stop and take account of my faith. When I'm believing wrong things. That I'm believing about, I need to follow these rules. I need to do these things to be acceptable by God. I need to follow through on these things if I'm to be loved by God. And boy, if I miss my quiet time for more than a day, I'm likely to be struck from the kingdom. That might be your thought. You might have a bigger time frame in there. If I don't pray enough, surely He doesn't love me. If I miss church, what would God think of me? We can all buy into this. But that's not the gospel. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that you believed in Jesus Christ and you were freed from your sin and you were freed from the slave master that is the law. But rule following isn't the only mistake you can make. Five times in the Old Testament a command like this is given. Deuteronomy 5.32 You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now in the New Testament, we are no longer held to the law, but the principle exists that you not turn to the right or turn to the left. Now I point that out because some of us are wired to be this way and we're going to be tempted to stray to the left and adopt rules that others must follow and that we must follow to be approved by God. And there'll be some of us who are wired the opposite way and we're tempted to stray to the right and quickly write off all of our sins and live in a grace Please note my fingers. So that we could keep on sinning because Jesus died on the cross to cover it all, didn't He? And totally take advantage of the cross. That's why Paul writes about this in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Amen. Makes me crabby too. Walk in the gospel. Not just that you received the Holy Spirit when you believed, but you received salvation. Walk in your salvation. Knowing that your standing before an eternal God is not sealed by your performance, but by your belief. Is there a fine line here between the right and the left? Absolutely. For we are not to be rule followers and, and judge our standing before God based on our rule following. And yet we're called to holiness. There's a tension there. It's a cliff we can easily fall off. 
Are we free in Christ? Yes. But there's a tension there that if we don't take sin seriously, there's a cliff that we could fall off. So we walk in the gospel, the line right down the middle that requires us not to be comfortable in our own practices, but to be comfortable in what happened at the cross. That what Jesus Christ did at the cross was entirely sufficient for my need. Noting that sometimes I put my right foot out, and sometimes I put my left foot out, and sometimes I run to the right, and sometimes I run to the left. But that I would get re-gospeled, that I would spend time in this book, it would bring me back to the truth. And that's what happens to the church in Acts 15. That's what happens in the Reformation. And that's what must happen in our lives regularly. That we would be brought back to who we are in Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of what He did and the cross for us. Church, in closing, I want to read a passage to you. Now, I didn't put it on the screen, and I didn't put it on the screen purposefully, because what I want is for you to listen to it. And I want for you to listen carefully to it. Because what the passage is going to put before you is your depravity, your sin, where that got you, And the gospel, who Jesus is, what he did, what he accomplished for you. And I want you to listen for one thing. What do you bring to the cross? What do you bring to the cross? Is there any moment in here where your performance shows up? Is there any moment where your checklist shows into question? Let me read this for us and then I'll pray. Ephesians 2, 1-10 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the picture of you before Christ. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.
Let me pray. Father, before we knew You, before we believed in You, we were dead in our trespasses in sin. Father, Your entire book confirms that. It lays out lists of sins that each of us probably didn't break all of them, but we got a pretty good pretty good most. And Father, if we're honest about it, in the middle of our sin and trespasses, Father, we were pursuing the world. But God, being rich in mercy, Father, You stepped into my depravity because You loved me. Not because of my deeds, not because of my works, not because of my potential. Father, because You loved me. You brought us together to be alive with You. In You. Unified with You. You saved us by Your grace. And You raised us up to be with You. To be seated with You in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Father, that is a positional sanctification that's true of everyone who's believed in You. That we've been raised up already. Father, You did it so that You could show us the immeasurable riches of Your grace. Father, not that You would count all our mistakes against us. Not that You could remind us of all the times we failed. Father, You did it so You could show us the immeasurable, countless measure of Your grace so that it would be proven, Father, for all of eternity that when we stand before You, we don't stand there on our own merit, Father, but because of Your grace, because of the completed work of Jesus Christ that was enough. Father, I'm so tempted in my own life to turn to the right or to the left to get lazy and fall to the right, or to get diligent and move to the left. Father, in my own walk with You, I can be so tempted to see how You view me in relation to my performance. Father, that is so anti the Gospel. Father, this morning as we consider Acts 15 and the re-gospeling of the church and we're mindful of the Reformation on Tuesday of how you re-gospeled the church. Father, would you bring us back to the Gospel? Wherever we sit. Father, whether we're wandering into sin, that you would call us home. Or Father, whether we're wandering into rule following, that you would call us home. To live in a place where we trust in You. But we don't find our hope or our guilt in our performance. May we be found in Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.